0: Part 2 Chapter 17 The Magnificent Adventure by Emerson Hogue This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Friends Allied in fortunes as they had been in friendship, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark went on side by side in their new labors in the capital of that great land which they had won for the Republic. Their offices and title were distinct, yet scarcely so in fact, for each helped the other, as they had always done. To these two men, the new territory of Louisiana owed not only its discovery, but its early passing over to the day of law and order. No other men could have done what they did in that time of disorder and change, when, rolling to the west in countless waves, came the white men, following the bee, crossing the great river, striking out into the new lands, a headstrong, turbulent, and lawless population. A thousand new and petty cares came to Governor Lewis. He passed from one duty to another, from one part of his vast province to another, traveling continually with the crude methods of transportation of that period, and busy night and day. Courts must be established. The compilation of the archives must be cared for. Records must be instituted to clear up the swarm of conflicts over land titles. Scores of new duties arose, and scores of new remedies needed to be devised the first figure of the growing capital of st louis the new governor was also the central figure of all social activities the signature of all eyes but the laughing bells of st louis at length sighed and gave him up they loved him as governor since they might not as man wise firm deliberate kind sad he was an old man now though still young in years. Scattered up and down the great valley, above and below St. Louis, and harboring in that town were many of the late adherents of Burr's broken conspiracy. These liked not the oncoming of the American government, enforced by so rigid an executive as the one who now held power. Threats came to the ears of Meriwether Lewis, who was hated by the burr adherents as the cause of their discomfiture, but he, wholly devoid of the fear of any man, only laughed at them. Honest and blameless, it was difficult for any enemy to injure him, and no man cared to meet Meriwether Lewis in the open. But at last one means of attack was found. Once more, the last time, the great heart of a noble man was pierced. Will, said he to his friend, as they met at William Clark's home, according to their frequent custom, I am in trouble. A fancy trouble, man, said Clark. You're always finding it. What I might call it fancied, but this is something in the way of facts, and very stubborn facts. See here? he held out certain papers in his hand by this morning's mail i get back these bills protested protested by the government at washington and they are bills that i have drawn to pay the expenses of administering my office here tut tut said william clark gravely come let us see look here and here will you know that i am a man of no great fortune you also know that I have made certain enemies in this country. But now I am not supported by my own government. I am ruined. I am a broken man. Did you think that this country could do that for either of us? But man, you, the soul of honor. Some enemy has done this. What influences have been set to work? I cannot say. But here are the bills, and there are others out in other hands. Also protested, I have no doubt. I am publicly discredited, disgraced. I know not what has been said of me at Washington. That is the trouble, said William Clark slowly. Washington is so far, but now you must not let this trouble you. "'Tis only some six dollars a week clerk in Washington that has done it. "'You must not consider it to be the deliberate act of any responsible head of the government. "'You take things too hard, man. "'I will not have you brooding over this. "'It will never do. "'You have the megrims often enough as it is. "'Come here and kiss the baby. "'He is named for you, Meriwether Lewis.' and he has two teeth. Sit down and behave yourself. Judy will be here in a minute. You are among your friends. Do not grieve. T'will all come well. This was in the year 1809. Mr. Jefferson's embargo on foreign trade had paralyzed all Western commerce. Our ships lay idle. Our crops rotted there was no market the name of jefferson was now in general execration in march when his second term as president expired he had retired to private life at monticello he had written his last message to congress that very spring in which he said of the people of his country i trust that in their steady character unshaken by difficulties in their love of liberty obedience to law and support of the public authorities i see a sure guarantee of the permanence of our republic and retiring from the charge of their affairs i carry with me the consolation of a firm persuasion that heaven has in store for our beloved country Long ages to come of prosperity and happiness. Whatever the veering, self-interest of others led them to think or do regarding the memory of that great man, Meriwether Lewis trusted Thomas Jefferson absolutely and relied wholly on his friendship and his counsel. Now, in the hour of trouble, he resolved to journey to Monticello to ask the advice of his old chief as he had always done in this he was well supported by his friend dr sargrane you are ill governor you have the fever of these lands urged that worthy by all means leave this country and go back to the east go by way of new orleans and the sea the voyage will do you much good Puria, said meriwether lewis to his french servant and attendant Make ready my papers for my journey. Have a small case, such as can be carried on horseback. I must take with me all my journals, my maps, and certain of the records of my office here. Get my old spyglass. I may need it, and I always fancy to have it with me when I travel, as was my custom in the West. Secure for our costs and travel some gold. Three or four hundred dollars, I imagine. I will take some on my belt and give the rest to you for the saddle trunk. Your Excellency plans to go by land then and not by sea? I do not know. I must save all the time possible. Empiria! Yes, Excellency. Have my pistols well cared for. And your own as well. See that my small powder canister, with bullets, is with them in the holster. The trails are none too safe. Be careful whom you advise of our plans. My business is of private nature, and I do not wish to be disturbed. And here, take my watch," he concluded. It was given to me by a friend, a good friend, Mr. Wirt, and I prize it very much. So much that I fear to have it on my person. Care for it in the saddle trunk. Yes, Excellency. Do not call me Excellency. I detest the title. I am Governor Lewis, and may so be distinguished. Go now, and do as I have told you. We shall need about ten men to man the barge. Arrange it. Have our goods ready for an early start tomorrow morning. All that night, sleepless, fevered, almost distracted, Meriwether Lewis sat at his desk, writing, or endeavoring to write, with what matters upon his soul we may not ask. But the long night wore away at last, and morning came, a morning of the early fall, beautiful as it may be only in that latitude. Without having closed his eyes in sleep, the governor made ready for his journey to the east. Whether or not Peria was faithful to all his instructions, one cannot say, but certainly, all St. Louis knew of the intended departure of the governor. They loved him, these folk, trusted him, would miss him now, and they gathered almost in mass to bid him Godspeed upon his journey. These papers for Mr. Jefferson, Governor, certain land titles, of which we spoke to him last year, do you not remember? Thus Chateau, always busy with affairs. These samples of cloth and satin, Governor, said a dark-eyed French girl, smiling up at him. Would you match them for me in the east? I am to be married in the spring. These price of furs. Learn of that, Governor, if you can, while on your journey. The embargo has ruined the trade in all this inland country. It was Manueliza, swarthy, taciturn, who thus voiced a general feeling. Books! More books, my son! implored Dr. Sograne. We are growing here! I must keep up with the surgery of the day. I must know the new discoveries in medicine. Bring me books and take this little case of medicines. You are ill, my son. The fever has you. My people, they mourn for me as dead, said Big White, the Mandan, who had never returned to his people up the Missouri River since the repulse of his convoy by the Sioux. Tell the great father that he must send me soldiers. To take me back home to my people. My heart is poor. Governor, see if you can get me an artificial limb of some sort while you are in the East. It was young George Shannon who said this, leaning on his crutch. Shannon had not long ago returned from another trip up the river, where, in an encounter with the Sioux, he had received a wound which cost him a leg and almost cost him his life. Though later, as has already been said, he was to become a noted figure at the bar of the state of Kentucky. Yes! Yes and yes! Their leader, punctilious as he was kind, agreed to all these commissions, prizing them, indeed, as proof of the confidence of his people. He was ready to depart, but stood still, looking about for the tall figure which presently he saw advancing through the throng. A tall man, with wide mouth and sunny hair, with blue eye and stalwart frame. William Clark, the friend whom he loved so much, and whom he was now to see for the last time. General Clark carried upon his arm the baby which had been named after the governor of the new territory. Lewis took him from his father's arms and pressed the child's cool face to his own suddenly trembling a little about his own lips as he felt the tender flesh of the infant. No child of his own might he ever hold thus. He gave him back with a last look into the face of his friend. Goodbye, Will, said he. End of Part 2 Chapter 17